up one zero. The beauty of the idea of talking about weather in the midst of everything that we've gone through over the last few days is actually fucking beautiful. I just stepped away for a minute to get a water, and Alex and Kristen, I come back, they're talking about weather, and it makes me happy because that makes it feel like there's we're gonna calm make it in the air. All right, before I kick it to you guys, we're gonna make it. All right, before I kick it to you, I'm not gonna have time to do a, an intro and an outro for this, so I want to just jump in with. Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Uh, not the greatest moderator on earth, but we'll get that get to that later. Uh, I have two very special guests with me here. Got Alex Johnson and Kristen Anderson. You've both been on the podcast before, but let's do a quick, uh, just, I guess, intro how you identify yourselves at this point. I mean, I don't know, Kristen, how do you identify yourself, Alex? I mean, Kristen's speaking for two. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you want to include gender pronouns, go whatever direction you want, but yeah. How do you identify yourselves at this point? Uh, I'm the, uh, former founder and CEO of a company called catch. Uh, we shut down four days before this whole disaster with SBV, uh, unrolled. So I, I don't actually know how I identify myself at the moment. Uh, FinTech aficionado is probably the, the best, the best intro. Let's go yeah, ahead and put it, Alex. Uh, uh, that, that'll how do you identify <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I think fintech aficionado is good for me too. Uh, I also write a newsletter called Fintech Takes, but um, mostly just spend time on Twitter losing my mind. So that was definitely this weekend's job. <laughs> that was this weekend's job. So we uh, organized this on, what was it, Saturday? So Alex, I think I asked you yesterday morning, Kristen, we were talking about it. I don't, I don't know. I've lost track of days and time. I don't know if you guys have slept, but I've sort of, I know Kristen hasn't. Um, but we did this initially when we were thinking this was going to be a full-on emergency pod. We weren't sure if there was going to be a bank opening today, more bank closing. We had no fucking clue what was going to hit Monday morning. And this is now a less of an emergency pod. So running through it quickly, last night, um, the Fed stepped in uh, to say that all deposits that were uninsured will be guaranteed associated with SVB. And then also, just as like a little byline there included, the Signature Bank has also been uh, shut down and that that is just like just a little note that we're going to throw on the end. Um, so first things first, curious about just that initial reaction last night. Like, did we pop bottles? Kristen, did you pop a LaCroix? Like, what what was that initial feeling for the two of you just emotionally? Um, so I guess a little bit of background is helpful for, for why I care about this. Um, so I am yeah. a... Fintech CEO, I guess, former Fintech CEO, but we still had um, a little over a million dollars at SVB. And those funds were uh, earmarked for winding down our company, paying out our obligations, paying our team, um, and then doing all the things that we needed to do to sort of end on a good note. We notified our customers last Monday, but obviously there's still some amount of time that it takes for people to withdraw from it. You know, like it's the process of winding down a company. So um, for us, it was obviously a, a pretty stressful time. Um, I, I will say like on the, on the side of how stressful it could be, we certainly hadn't just raised around. We talked about, man, if you had just raised around and put your money in there, like this would have been a totally different ball game when you're running full speed. We were already in that wind down process, but, but, uh, I think the reason why, uh, the whole crisis mattered so much to us was that it was really important to us that we were doing right by our customers and our team and our vendors and our bankers and, you know, all of those things. And we sort of had a fairly tight plan of how that was supposed to look. And so, you know, this this blindsided us just like pretty much everybody else. Um, when the news came out last night, um, I think, you know, I think one thing that's important to note is that like the the Fed saying that those deposits are guaranteed is different than taxpayers and the government guaranteeing them. And so I feel like this was kind of, you know, it's it's obviously obvious in retrospect, but I felt like it was one of those like, yes, we knew this was a valuable bank. Yes, we knew there were underlying assets, but the thing that was so important was the speed with which we could gain some certainty because that was the scariest thing of the whole thing for us. It wasn't that there was never gonna be any way to get any of the money back. It was more of just like, how long is it going to take, especially for us, like how long is it going to take? How many weeks or months is it going to take before we recover? What, 50, 75%, 80%? Like we just don't know. And that uncertainty is the thing that kills small businesses. So we were happy, but a little bit more of just like a, I guess, relieved that the market worked quickly to provide certainty and not like surprised that a resolution was reached. Yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> I think we all knew 
that it would end up there. I mean, it's just like a cash flow fear, right? Like at the end of the day, it's right. a, you can skate to where the puck's going to be in a year, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to fucking shoot ourselves in the foot 15 times before we get there. And it seems like we shot ourselves in the foot enough time with the communication last week that I, I don't know. I, I wasn't that convinced that we were going to figure anything out Sunday evening. Like I really thought that it was going to be like 6 a.m. today, Eastern, that somebody was going to step in and say something and maybe quell fears. But I don't know. Alex, what, what was your take? Yeah, I mean, I think Kristen hit it on the head, especially in terms of speed. You know, speed was the, the I think, defining characteristic of this whole story starting on Thursday where there's rumors flying around and everyone's pulling their money out. Um, and I think, what, like $48 billion got pulled out in just like a day, which is um, a shocking, shocking number when you compare it to previous uh, examples of this having happened. Um, so, you know, Zach, you called it a... Uh, bank run in the age of Twitter, which I think is exactly the right way to think about this. And, you know, that speed uh, and the sort of rumors and speculation and rampant tweeting where people just wouldn't shut up, just kept going and going on Friday over the weekend. And everything was evolving so fast that I think, you know, when I saw the stuff come out um, on Sunday evening from the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC, my just overwhelming reaction was like, I'm glad they were noticing the speed at which all of this stuff was happening and took, you know, extra measures to reassure the market even before we got to Monday, right? I mean, the FDIC knows what they're doing. They would have opened their doors on Monday, you know, depositors under 250,000 would have gotten all their money back. Uh, there would have been a dividend for some amount for people over 250, which was obviously the majority of deposit holders. So we would have started to get some resolution. And I, I trust the FDIC knows what they're doing with this stuff. But the steps they took seemed really in response to the speed at which all this was unfolding and trying to stop the dominoes from continuing to tip over at that speed. You know, one of the funniest things I saw was, uh, Someone was like, you know, everyone talks about the importance of a 24-7 market, but I don't think you could have timed a better weekend for people to just breathe for a second. <laughs> so true. That's so true. I saw, like, I think. Let them catch up and let let them do their jobs for a day or two and then let mm -hmm. let the markets open again. And I was, it was good timing for, for the old school, uh, you know, nine to fives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the whole like 24-7, 365 banking market idea is like, no, I think I'm good, you know, and I also understood now like the whole um, when there's a financial panic, your stockbroker just won't pick up the phone. And that's part of their right. job, right, is to like not pick up the phone when you call. Like I was really hoping that like we could just unplug Twitter and just like let's just like let's just completely disable all communications for like 48 hours and then see what happens. <laughs> I saw something on, I can't remember who it was, and I was just scrolling through Twitter trying to find it, but I saw something that somebody was prognosticating that had they announced the loss on like one day later, the SVB kind of bond sale loss, the, the thing that kind of sparked a lot of this, uh, that their theory was that potentially SVB would still be alive, right? Like the, the, the Fed could have, or the, the FDIC, I should say, could have stepped in on Friday slowed things down to the point where SVB could have been in a place where it truly like SVB, SVB would have opened back up today. Not the, uh, what is it called? The deposit insurance, national bank of Santa Clara. It's a mouthful. Um, so it's, do you guys have thoughts on that? And also Alex, I wanted to understand, especially from your perspective, I think you're the expert expert here. Like does the deposit insurance national bank of Santa Clara open today? Or is that like, is that a wire that is just getting sent out of there? Is that a bank that's going to function? Like, how does this work going forward? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that it was going to be uh, the Bank of Santa Clara um, uh, this morning until the announcement last night. Now they're doing something okay. slightly different, which is um, setting up what I think they call a bridge bank, um, which is, I think the only distinction there is really that... Um, it's now going to uh, cash out depositors, including uninsured depositors, fully. And that's a change from where the FDIC was on Friday and just generally a change um, in the way that the FDIC works, right? That's not their typical mode of operation. So I think the change that they're making today is really just a function of we're now guaranteeing 100% of all deposits and making depositors whole. But functionally, my understanding is it's still going to work roughly the same way, which is that Everything's going to turn on this morning. Um, you know, you'll be able to log into online banking. Debit cards will work. 
uh, people will answer the phone and it's, you know, the FDIC who's running the show, but um, everything kind of works the same way that it did before. And I, I think that's kind of an underrated um, sort of design feature of the way that deposit insurance works is it's not just guaranteeing the funds. It's we come in and operate the bank. Uh, functionally speaking, we operate the tech stack. Everything works the way that it did before so that we can unwind this in an orderly way. The other thing that I think is kind of unknown somewhat, uh, which I, I expected to have more resolution on, but is maybe now less urgent because of um, everything that happened on Sunday night, is we don't actually know who's going to buy the assets, right? And they were going through an auction process uh, over the weekend. Um, I, As Kristen said, I still think there's a lot of value associated with these assets. And so I think there will be a sale and that's all going to proceed. But it does seem like that's been pushed somewhat to the back burner, given the focus on just making all deposit holders whole. Well, I will just say the online portal is currently not working. <laughs> it's maintenance still. So that was going to be my follow-up. We do have an insider here. I, well, yeah, like a customer Seriously. tens of thousands of others. But 9.17 a.m. on Monday morning, it is still listed as maintenance. Um, the main website for svb.com does say, like, click here to log into online banking. And you do, and mm. it's it's down. So. Um, maybe, maybe that'll change a little later in the morning. I don't know if time zones have anything to do. I know it's early on the West coast, but, um, as of right now, that's not true. And I think again, from a customer perspective, that's one of the things that like really matters. <laughs> like totally. it's nice to get an announcement. It's nice to get, you know, that information, but at the end of the day, you know, our payroll runs through that SVB account and it gets pulled on Tuesday. So like tactically, right. Where is my account and routing number the same? Is my login the same? Is like, you know, so I think that's the sort of stuff that like, it's pretty amazing that they've gotten this far in, in 48 or 72 hours to even have answers to some of those questions. And I, I think that's, that is kind of stunning to see. Uh, but there is still some amount of uncertainty on the like, okay, well, how, how does that, where do I go from here? <laughs> Yeah, I just pulled up the Modern Treasury. Uh, they've kind of been doing regular updates, and it looks like their last update was yesterday at, huh, that's not that recent. Yesterday at 1230 Pacific, no changes, uh, just in terms of the SVB Transact Gateway. I mean, Christian, how, how do you think you'll get that information? Or Alex, how does that information flow, right? Because I, I think that's the thing that, that I've... <laughs> Is that it? I mean, this is this is my question. Are you receiving a? Or should you be? Should you be receiving an, an email from some version of SVB if it's that bridge or whatever of the three iterations that we've seen over the weekend? Um, that's you know giving you some clarity here. Is it going to come from the FDIC? Like how how does this? How do we get from A to B? I guess is my biggest thing. Like now that we're all calm and we're all pumping champagne and everything, like how does how does the money actually move? To Kristen's point. Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, uh, and it was it's really interesting, Kristen, to hear that the uh, website is still down for maintenance. I think that should, as I understand it, resolve itself at some point today. And account number, routing number, online banking login, all of it should be the same. And I I think the theory behind that design is that it's supposed to make that fairly seamless and doesn't necessarily require like special outreach or communication or, Hey, reset your password or whatever. So I think that's the theory, but again, to your point, theory and practice are totally different. And as many people have observed this weekend, uh, this is the first one of these we've done and sort of the modern on demand digital banking, Twitter economy and things might not work quite as well or as smoothly as we're used to them in sort of the olden days. So I, I think that's a totally fair concern and something that's a bit of an unknown still. Oof. Well, I hope that starts working in the next couple hours or else the fucking Twitter mob will create all the questions in the world sort of a thing, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just a little thing. They it will. seems like they every will. little thing that can create a question is going to lead to just sheer insanity at this point. Well, maybe, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's from the outside, I think a lot of people are happy to make comments on whether or not this is as, as serious as people say, or, you know, what's causing panic and what's really real. But I will say from the inside, like the creation of that panic is not totally unreasonable. And again, I, I think what I, what I think is important for people to understand is sort of like how founders end up in this position and like why they're holding more than 250k and like how that fits in with like 
you know, regular banking, it's really easy if you're just a retail customer to be like, well, you're an idiot if you put more than $250,000 in a bank account. But like understanding particularly how venture back startups are different than just retail consumers or even even most Main Street businesses, I think, is like an important dynamic to why this was so um so potentially, you know, dangerous and why people were so upset. So let, let's unpack that a little bit, because I think that's a, a really good point. And I think you should just host this going forward, Kristen, yeah. you have an hour on it. And even though you're tired, <laughs> yeah, you've been up since 2.30 a.m., you're you're hitting yeah. the important points here. Um, yeah. So a few things. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, if you just want to take it and run, go ahead. But I especially want to talk about venture debt as to why that was yeah. keeping people there. Um, and... Uh, also the, I thought it was pretty interesting the way that the money market funds were structured in this case. I mean, that's kind of a separate thing, but the, the fact that the money market funds were an SBV, SVB, how many times are we going to SBV instead of SVB? Cause I've done it like 14 times already today. Uh, the number I had of times done, like triple SVB... check my newsletters when I was writing it, it was bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, the money market funds were in SVB's name. So if Kristen from Catch was calling to find out where the money market was you know, held, like Kristen from Catch had nothing, right? So before we get to that, though, let's talk about venture debt. Yeah. Let's talk about why, Kristen, you would ever go about if you raised a $10 million round, shifting yeah. that into 40 different bank accounts or whatever yeah. it is, why you would ever so, use your yeah, phone can, that way. Yeah, I can, I can talk a little bit about when we raised our Series A, because I think at our peak, we had a about 11 or 12 million in that that exact SVB account. Um, and uh, again, I, I am a fintech founder. I know a little bit about fintech. Um, and we also asked the question, is that what we're supposed to be doing with this money? <laughs> uh, that doesn't quite feel right. Like what, what you know, so we, um, we raised a Series A in 2021 um, for about $12 million. And um, we take our responsibility seriously as, as a fiduciary, as a, as a holder and custodian of the funds that are trusted to us as a business. Um, and so we, and I actually had a friend from college who happened to work at JP Morgan on the treasuries team. So we went so far as to get an entire scope proposal about treasury management from JP Morgan and sort of figure out what we should do there. Um, this was 2021, so interest rates were zero, which is important <laughs> because the money, the treasury management was sort of like, here's how we think we can get you like 0.9% <laughs> on your money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was in this nice JP Morgan uh, proposal with like beautiful templates and like 47 pages of disclosures about how your investments can lose value. And, you know, I looked at it and like, I had a had a finance who sort of put this together and, you know, we, we kind of, we just looked at it and we were like, you know, these are still investments. <laughs> they still lose value. We talked to our investors and our investors who are great, like really like tier one investors were like, you know, it's really just like not your job. Like we didn't give you this money to manage it because you are not good at managing money. Like if we wanted money managers, we would have given money to money managers, right? And if we were trying to optimize money management, we would not give it to entrepreneurs whose job is to create unique value that doesn't otherwise exist in the market. So I think like the thing that's important about venture debt as compared to regular businesses is that like in general, most of them are cash burning businesses, right? Like most months you're taking, you're like draining down on bank accounts which means that you go through these funding rounds and you like top up your account with some amount of money and then you spend it down. Now there are certain sizes where you might say like, okay, this is the size to, to start to have like people on your team managing it. And I think a lot of people disagree about what size that is. I think there are some people who are like, if you have more than a million dollars, you should have someone like doing finance for you full time. But that's not really what venture backed returns have shown is the right way to manage this sort of risk. Um, and so we, you know, we had our money in the account, we spent down over the last couple of years, um, and we had talked about a lot of different products, but like, candidly, like, they're not simple. <laughs> they're not easy. And many of them have their own disclosures about risk that require like quite a bit of understanding, right? And so the idea that you're going to opt into something different than just like a deposit account, like... A deposit account is sort of the default, right? And the choice to move into something other than that is an active choice where you're saying, I understand what I'm doing and why. And many venture back founders, especially early stage, pre-seed, seed, series A, like it does not make sense for them to try and manage that kind of an outcome because they're then taking on new risk of using financial products that they don't fully understand. 
And that is a risk. <laughs> and so it's like to make the choice to sort of shift to that kind of a model is additional overhead in terms of time, in terms of effort to understand, and then particularly in cash flow management, right? Some people have been like, you can like hold it at multiple accounts. You can, you know, do all these sorts of different things with sweeps and stuff. And like, yeah, but like if money is coming into and out of your account and you're like trying to just basically spend down, like you are adding quite a bit of overhead. So, you know, I don't want to try and like, well, no, I, I will exactly do this. I am defending the founders who made the choice to hold more than $250,000 at SVB because I don't believe that that was an actively risky choice. And I think it is a dramatic misrepresentation to act as though business owners with a million dollars in capital should be managing their time focused on like bank failure risk. Fuck it. I mean, what do you think you just went out on a limb? Like, is that going out on a limb to say that over 250K in your goddamn business account at SBB yes. is a fucking risk? Like, is, is that like I mean, that's, that's going against the grain now? I got. That is yeah. a lot of one. I remember. I yeah. Well, I think there was one guy that I'm now convinced is a bot. Um, I actually have no idea who this guy is and I'm not going to name him here because he was such a dickhead on Twitter over the weekend, but he came back at you, Kristen, on what you're talking about and literally said, I think that you could get, you could get this into like short-term T-bills at Schwab, uh, in like, uh, 35 seconds or some shit like that. I mean, I wanted to jump through Twitter and just smack him in the fucking face, but it was, it was rampant this weekend actually. So I guess to some degree, yeah, I guess that is going against the grain, but Good Lord, how uneducated, uneducated are I mean, we on banking and the understanding of product market fit? It's finance yeah, but, people who are sitting there saying yeah. that their core competency should be business's core competency. And it's a it's a lack of understanding of how venture startups create returns, right? And that's that's really what it is. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's okay that they don't know what it means to be an entrepreneur creating venture returns, but it's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking of like, well, you shouldn't have done this. And you can buy treasuries. The guy said you can buy treasuries in two minutes on Schwab. $10 million of treasuries in two yeah. minutes on Schwab. And I was just yeah. like. There's nothing know, like, you can do in two minutes on Schwab. <laughs> I was like, maybe if you bought $10 million in treasuries on Schwab last week, you could buy another $10 million in two minutes. Maybe, right? Right. But like. The other thing, again, is that totally ignores the management aspect of cash flow. Like you're having to time when are these T-bills maturing, when are they, you know, and like that's a job. That's a full-time job. And by the way, most of these people do that job full-time. So I'm like, if you recognize that you are a full-time worker spending time on this, you have to acknowledge that like maybe that's not the right, you know, right amount of risk level for a business that has fewer than 20 people. A lot of people disagree and with that apparently. But totally. Most people email says it because i think balaji said the same thing and everyone was like yeah <laughs> like God well you know if you if you tweet from like your lair in singapore it's a little bit different sort of thing um but to go so i want to go to something that alex said on twitter actually uh that was playing off of what you were just saying Kristen. and now my brain is kind of off in the ether what was i just going to bring up um oh that was the irony of the risk manager so Kristen, you should be the risk manager of the risk manager of the risk manager, and you should be just on top of this, and you should have 407 bank accounts. But something that Alex tweeted over the weekend that I thought was just <laughs> so obvious in retrospect was the lack of risk management. Well, I don't know if you exactly phrased it this way, Alex, but I want you to expand on it, was the like lack of risk management overall at um, – at SVB and just, I think your tweet was just buy shorter duration bonds, right? In terms of the MBSs and the treasuries, I think is what you said. And the, like the irony of people coming at Kristen and coming at startup founders and saying like, manage your risk better, yada, yada, yada. And the fucking bank risk department that led to all this was buying long-term trade. Like they fucked it up. Anyway, Alex, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. I mean, let's not like forget that. Um, and I think there was a lot of um, nice tweeting over the weekend about SVB and the role that it's played in the startup community and uh, all of that. And I think that's all great. I know people who work at SVB. They're awesome. They work really yeah. hard. They're great partners for founders, blah, blah, blah. Management completely fucked up. And I think that like being honest about that is really important. They you know, didn't have a chief risk officer for the majority of last year, which seems like a relevant point to bring up. Um, and Mary. yeah, I mean, I, I had a, a colleague on Twitter who uh, compared it to um, running in front of a steamroller to pick up pennies. I think that's a pretty good way of thinking about the the sort of risk versus value trade-off that they were making with these bonds, right? I mean, if you're buying long-term mortgage-backed securities in a zero interest rate environment, you know, you're picking up like just 
basis points of extra return relative to what you get for picking up shorter bonds and taking massive interest rate risk, which, and this is the other point I made when I wrote about it in my newsletter, it's not like SVB is brand new, right? It's not like they have not been around through multiple cycles within the tech industry. They were around the, the dot-com boom, right? They saw a huge outflow of deposits when the venture-backed ecosystem and the tech ecosystem slowed down in the early 2000s. They know exactly what that looks like. And so it's not hard to project the potential for increased deposit outflows from cash-burning businesses and say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be buying all of these long-term securities. Or maybe if we do, we should find a way to hedge that. And I get that like hedging those risks is expensive. It eats into your margin. I understand that paying more to make your deposits stickier and retain deposits is a little bit more challenging. But there are so many different avenues that they could have taken to just being like a good bank. And if they had this wouldn't have happened, right? And I, I've seen a lot of speculation online, and obviously there's been the stock market kind of reacting to all of this about what other banks are in this situation, or is this some kind of contagion that's going to spread broadly across the market? And there's definitely a lot of these securities and sort of long-term securities sitting inside of other banks. That's true. But I think you know it's also important to recognize that this was a pretty peculiar combination of characteristics that happened at SVB and Signature and Silvergate, like they're somewhat unique animals relative to most banks. And a large part of it also combined with the fact that they just made some huge mistakes in terms of, I think, fairly basic risk management that, um, you know, shouldn't go unremarked upon. And I'm guessing that uh, regulators and shareholders will have some questions about for um, the X management of SVB over the next couple of months. Well, and Alex, you you are talking about like tools to retain deposits and Zach, we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but like SVB was doing a lot of those, right? If you if you had a loan from SVB, they required that you keep your balances um, at SVB. We we did, right? We are one of those companies, right? Um, and so while there are still things you all, could have done- All balances, risk, right? Right, right. Like and, no and other now, money anywhere else, right? Well, yeah, you can have carve outs and, you know, like if you're if you're negotiating that loan appropriately, which, again, maybe maybe this is where founder responsibility comes in. You Like we had some carve outs and stuff like that. But uh, but generally okay. speaking, they used a lot of those tools to try and, and keep deposits high. And again, these are cash burning businesses, but they were really like they were really aggressive in trying to keep balances held at SVB, trying to keep you know, like they, we had to have a carve out for our American Express card, right? Mm. <laughs> like they're like, you should only use SVB credit cards. And we're like, well, we've had this Amex for four years. Like we're not getting rid of it. Like <laughs> right, right, right. You know, we'll set some limit on it on what monthly spend we can do. And I, I think, you know, there, there, there are things that you can do, but like they worked really hard to try and like, con like consolidate their customer base inside their bank, which again, like I, I get it. I get why businesses do that. But then you combine that, like, Startups, you know, it's easy to look from the outside and say, you have millions of dollars. You're so powerful. But like, if you're a founder who has $3 million in seed funding, like you are the littlest guy on the block when it comes to bankers and credit cards and financing. And like, no one gives a shit about like your $3 million. And I think that's hard for people outside of venture to understand because $3 million is a lot of money. It sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But in this world, you don't often have the ability to drive terms, to drive favorability, to, or even the time really to do that. And so venture investors, I think rightfully so, often advise their founders to take the standard deal, not over-optimize for things that aren't your core business competency, and focus on driving 10x, 100x returns instead of focusing on, like you said, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Like founders who do that fail for sure. Banks who do that fail for sure, right? Like humans who do that would probably fail. For sure. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason that's just good advice generally not to do that. It's just good advice. Yeah. If there's a steamroller coming, yeah. leave the pennies behind. And so I, I think that's that's a really important point of like, they were doing these risky behaviors at the same time as having like a strong arm over a vast majority of the number of their depositors. Now, obviously there are some that are huge that I'm sure had really favorable relationships, but like, small seed rounds inside of SVB were not getting special treatment in terms of ability to like diversify and treasury manage, even if they were trying to optimize for risk management. Well, and I think the other point there, Kristen, that you brought up that's a really good one is 
there's concentration on the part of SVB as well, right? I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are other banks out there that will have lots of different sort of franchises that sit within one roof. And so they might get their deposits from one place, but their yeah. lending goes to a totally different set of customers. And I think, you know, those more diversified business models, um, they probably are not quite as efficient at squeezing out profit when times are good, but they're more resilient when times are bad. And I, I couldn't kind of stop thinking about like, well, what if SVB on the lending side, and they don't do a tremendous amount of lending relative to other banks their size, like what if they just had lending businesses that they had built up over years doing commercial lending and just sort of like your regular boring banking stuff, like that would have given them another way to make profits when rates were going up rather than grabbing those long-term fixed rate securities. And so I, I do think that there is a lesson here about, regardless of how big or small your bank is, the more sort of narrow you are and the more concentrated you are, the more just sort of inherently unstable your business model is. And obviously that applies to Signature and to Silvergate as well. Well, and that wasn't, you know, I don't think it was the biggest part of this problem, but SVB started doing a lot more venture debt in twenty one. And right. the advice and 22, right? And the advice from boards was venture debt is cheap right now. And it was underwritten by these valuations mm -hmm. that were super inflated. And so that concentration, again, in that tech market was like, you know, we we got a fairly favorable loan and we didn't we didn't think we needed it. I'm glad I'm glad in, you know, in all of this that we that we had it. But like, I, I think that a lot of those loans are not necessarily as healthy as standard loans because tech had such a valuation problem in the last 24 months. Yeah. Well, and, and I think I mean, the other a... thing there is just, at, oh, sorry, Zach, go ahead. No, 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 go keep going. Well, I was just going to say the, the other thing that um, that sort of makes me think about a little bit is there is an element of, and I think a lot of banks struggle with this, but like, if you're a bank, your job is to be somewhat dispassionate about whatever market you serve, right? And so it's like, yeah, you know, we do commercial ag real estate in this state, and we love this state, and we love this community, and we love these farmers that we work with, but we also are sensitive to the fact that, like, if a tornado comes in, that's going to be bad, and we have to have geographic distribution of our loans, and we have to balance that out in our loan book, otherwise we're going to be screwed. You have to be a little bit dispassionate to be a good banker, and I think that's another thing I've noticed about SVB generally is they sort of became the tech industry's kind of biggest cheerleaders and were really sort of enmeshed in the industry. And I, I saw sort of more lighthearted tweets over the weekend about I'm really going to miss those like SVB dinners, right? I mean, they're pretty well known for like, you know, giving something back to the, the tech industry and being a part of that. And I think there was a little bit of uh, a lack of objectivity on the part of SVB going, well, no, the tech industry is just going to keep going up and to the right because it's been such good times over the last, you know, 10 plus years. But that's not what good objective risk-based bankers do. And I kind of feel like that's another trap they stepped into a bit. Yeah, no, I, I totally just... agree. The... Oh, <laughs> Apparently, disagree. Agree, Jump. disagree. Go, go, go. Okay, <laughs> go, Kristen. I'm gonna let Zach talk. This is his podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is why I wanted you two here. Was literally I just wanted to listen. So go, Kristen. So I, I, the reason I, I I agree that bankers should be dispassionate, but I disagree about the idea that tech equals monoculture San Francisco. Mm. And I think that's that's something that I disagree okay, about. Fair. I think you can have a diversified portfolio in tech because I think tech is everything. So that's maybe a nuanced point. And I, you know, and I understand sort of the, the point behind the point of like yeah. becoming too friendly with the relationship side. But I, I do think that like, there are a lot of tech companies that SVB should have, I don't know if they were, I know, no inside knowledge, but like, were they looking at like, tech companies that were building up in Texas to serve the health insurance brokers industry? Like, were they looking at tech companies that were building up in Illinois to serve, you know, I don't know, other sorts of things that aren't your classic sort of like, you know, fancy Silicon Valley tech, but that's, that's sort of where I would say there is an opportunity to think about tech in a way that can be diversified instead of just like YC companies. Cause those are different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I totally agree too. Actually the, the thing that I was thinking there was, I guess I was just assuming that. And so, I, I mean, me sitting in Kansas City, Alex, you're sitting in Montana, Kristen, you're in New York. I mean, I, I guess I just assume that goes without saying in my head. I mean, I understand what you're saying and the fact that you needed to say it out loud, Kristen, I totally agree. 
but like I mean, over I'm the a weekend, YCPAC founder with... in New York City. I, I am exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's like the over the weekend, I spent a good amount of time, you know, with Kansas Cityans talking about how this is going to impact Kansas City and just thinking about how this will impact other Midwestern cities. And I have at least one angel investment that lives in KC, the company and the founder, um, and they had all of their money at SVB. Right. So that was that was uh, something that I completely expected based on the quality of the founder, because he's a damn good founder and he was able to raise a good amount of money. And I wasn't shocked based on the stipulations with the venture debt and yada, yada, yada. So, yeah, I, mean, I guess in my head, it goes without saying, like, of course, one, it is like industry agnostic, agnostic in terms of the idea that technology is touching all of this. Um, and every single vertical in the world, and also that it's geographically agnostic, or not even geographically agnostic, but like geographically spread. I mean, including the fact that this is hitting the UK, including the fact that there's, or not hitting the UK since HSBC jumped in and bought SVB UK for literally one pound. Um, but there were even concerns about SVB China, uh, but they're good there because that's a separate balance sheet and a, you know, kind of 50-50 ownership. Anyway, 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 point being, the thing I was going to say to both of you before this was it almost feels like this is like a very, it's a unique time of the music continuing to play all of a sudden until it doesn't, right? In terms of a few different things. And one thing that I have heard whisperings of, and I don't really understand, and Alex, you might actually have a better sense of this, Kristen, you might too, was that there were some pieces of Dodd-Frank that were rolled back right as Trump took office and right as SVB just went through the friggin' ceiling, like the, their, I think their deposit base was at like, I can't remember exactly. I want to say like 40 ish billion, 50 ish billion, something like that. And then it doubled within a small time frame, doubled again, and then like almost doubled again or something like that. And it seems like the, what Kristen was saying in terms of the time frame of when venture debt really picked up in 2021 would have been when that music was playing the loudest post uh, that rollback. And I believe and Alex, I'm sure you have more context on this than me, but I believe it was basically that banks under 250 billion in assets would no longer have to go under undergo stress testing in the same way that they would have, um, for one of the larger banks. Tell me how much of that was incorrect. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, what I, I appreciate that we're all being sort of cautiously uncertain about things that we know and things that we don't know, because that's a refreshing change of pace from the weekend, basically. But um, yeah, my understanding is uh, the same as yours, which is that um, there there were some adjustments that basically reduced the compliance burden on banks that were not considered to be systemically important, right? So anyone who's sort of under that massive bank threshold got a slightly easier deal when it came to compliance. And, you know, I think that I, I spent a lot of time this weekend thinking about stress tests, right? Because I think that's mm -hmm. one of the sort of most effective regulatory tools we have for just figuring out, like, what's going to happen in different scenarios. And like, again, going back to that sort of dispassionate banker thing, like, you know, interest rates will eventually go up and this market will eventually slow down and rates will do this. And so like, there's just, there's a, there's an element of, everything is cyclical and everything will change and we should stress test for these different scenarios. Banks don't like stress tests and they don't like to do more of that work than they have to. They complain about it being a drag on profitability. They complain about having to hire more compliance people to do that. It just slows everything down and makes it unfun. However, one of the stress tests that they specifically do for large systemically important financial institutions that's super important is stress testing interest rate risk, right? And that's one of the key things mm. that got missed here uh, at SVB and at a number of much smaller banks as well, which is, um, yeah, hey, what are you doing with all of your uh, assets and how are you investing them and how are you hedging against potential interest rate risk? And, you know, that to me, again, is such a core element to banking, right? I mean, someone, I think it was Mark Rubenstein who writes a great newsletter called Net Interest. He was talking about the fact that um, regulation is always fighting the last war rather than the next war. Um, <laughs> and, and I think the point he was sort of getting at there is that when we went through this in 2007, 2008, 2009, the problem we were trying to solve for is, hey, these assets are terrible. Like these are bad assets that are not worth the amount of money that um, you think that they're worth. So we need to crack down on that. We need to figure out ways to uh, you know, require banks to have greater capital reserves. We need to figure out ways to sort of make sure that they're not lending in an irresponsible way, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and I think we did all of that. The challenge is this time around, 
it wasn't a credit problem. It wasn't a risk problem. The assets, the underlying assets are all, you know, agency mortgage-backed securities and treasury bonds, right? Like they're not bad assets. It's just that the interest rate risk was something that we weren't watching after. And so I do think if you look at all of the balance sheet stuff and sort of looking at what banks did over the last couple of years, you know, you can look at like JP Morgan Chase and you can look at SVB and see two totally different pictures of how they dealt with interest rate risk, how they marked to market their different securities and sort of how they classified their securities. Uh, obviously, JP Morgan Chase has a much larger, more diverse deposit base. And then same thing on the lending side. So like you can just look at profiles of two totally different businesses and I think see the effect of two different regulatory regimes. So you know, I, I've spent a lot of time this weekend praising regulators for, I think, doing the right thing and being pretty responsive to this crisis. But I do think that as the smoke clears, we also need to have a conversation about what is the right way to adjust how we measure and look at this risk, because we clearly miss something. And keeping in mind that so much of what you just talked about doesn't actually get controlled by the regulator. Right. Like it wasn't the regulator's choice to stop going in and doing the 200, the sub $250 billion in asset right. size, uh, you know, review. It was uh, a political decision. And if we've seen anything this weekend, it's that politicians are fucking out of touch with what is going on here. I mean, I can't even believe I saw something this morning from a, it was like a San Francisco based politician that was like just abhorrently upset about the fact that the billionaires were bailed out or something like that, which I think is one take that Kristen brought up that we should like cover some of the worst takes from the weekend. And I think that that as a generality, I think we can bail in, we can like put that general thought of, you know, guaranteeing deposits is a bailing is a bailout for the ruling class. God, I can't talk this morning. I don't know how I have a podcast guys um, would be a bailout for the ruling class is just silliness and, like how disconnected are you from this world in reality or from actually how this world works to think that. So anyway, Chris, you, know, you want to comment on that I, whole situation? <laughs> yeah. I've heard, I've heard um, people say that like when you read in the press about something, you know, about very, very intimately, you realize how wrong the press is about what you know, super, super well. And then you yeah. start to think about, but wait a minute, I kind of assume the news that I hear about things that I don't know super well is correct. And so it starts to like shift your whole like point of view of the world. But I think like when you're an expert in something and you see how it's being talked about by non-experts, you're kind of like, oh, you're like, you're like missing it. Right. And I think that is one of those really um, prevalent takes right now by non-bank fintech finance people which is that this entire thing is the poor working class of this country bailing out David Sachs. And like, that is just not at all what's happening. And like, if that was what's happening, I would be lined up with them saying like, that's bullshit, right? And so I think that's one of the things that's really important. Like what we're talking about here, and I will say it, many people have said it, but I think it bears repeating again for non-expert audiences. This is not about people who made investments in Silicon Valley as a stock, right? Like this is not talking about investors who took on risk that they were trying to make a bunch of money on. Those people go to zero and should, and everyone believes that they should. And well, I won't say everyone, but all of the reasonable yeah. people in the world <laughs> believe that, right? And I think that this like this, um, you know, this distinction between depositors and investors and, you know, so, okay, that's the first misconception that we're talking about equity holders. No one is. We're talking about depositors. The difference here, I think, and where there's, there's a little bit of dangerous knowledge out there of people who are looking at crypto and they're like, well, all these crypto depositors lost all their money. You think that they should get bailed out? And it's like, well, that's different <laughs> because crypto was never a regulated product. Crypto was never was never supposed to be safe the way that U.S. banking institutions were safe. And again, there's a there's a, a whole bunch to kind of figure out about what crypto should or shouldn't do or what their obligations are or aren't. But I think that like comparing those two things and saying like, well, depositors get wiped out. That's just how the world works. Like we have to be careful about that narrative because we should not be equating. Like I honestly, I think it's a big win for the crypto industry to equate those things. 
because they shouldn't be considered the same thing. This is a banking product and the idea that like, yes, I understand what FDIC insurance is and that there's a $250,000 limit, but to be able to say like, well, all that means is any penny above $250,000 can go to zero overnight. Like, I don't think that's a system that we want. And what we're trying to say is not that like taxpayers, working class folks in Kansas City should be sending money to, you know, founders like me, what we're saying is we need to be able to provide some sort of backstop and guarantee that we think will get backfilled. Like we reasonably have, you know, and this is exactly what they've done, right? Is that we have reason to believe mm -hmm. that there will be private players who come in and do this. And I think that's like, it's just a shitty take and it's politically convenient. And it's like, you know, as a registered Democrat from the time I was 18, it's probably the thing in my life that's made me like most disappointed is there's just been a lot of like really bad faith takes on that. Fucking preach. Alex, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I totally agree. I mean, it's um, it's just sort of a failure to understand the distinctions between depositors and investors. And I think it's also sort of a residue of the last financial crisis, right? Again, going to that whole you fight the last war rather than fighting this war, right? I mean, like, I think there are very valid critiques of the way in which the government intervened last time and like what the consequences were or weren't for bank executives that, uh, you know, sort of crashed the global economy uh, during the last financial crisis. But like, this is not that, right? I mean, like the, the mm -hmm. no one is saying, no one reasonable, as Christian was saying, is arguing that the executives at SVB should keep their jobs or that equity holders, you know, should be made whole. Like none of that is true. You invest in a bank and the bank makes bad decisions, you lose your investment. That's fair. Um, but I think I totally agree that like, there's a very reasonable uh, belief and expectation, I think, on the part of anyone who holds deposits at a bank, that that bank is going to be prudent in the way that they manage risk. And that if you have some money over the FDIC insurance cap, that like, that's just not going to go to zero tomorrow. I think that's completely reasonable. And I think that the actions that the Fed and Treasury and FDIC took uh, last night Basically, we're saying we agree with that, right? That, you know, this is a reasonable expectation on the part of uh, consumers, on small businesses. Again, going forward, once the smoke clears, I think there are interesting conversations to be had around, like, what is the right cap? And I, I do think it's kind of strange that it's the same for mm -hmm. individuals as it is for businesses. That's always been kind of unusual to me. I don't totally understand that. So I think there are really conversations favorite. to be had there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone reasonable who was like, oh, no, you know, anyone who had more than 250,000 it's it, it that number sounds like a lot going back to what Kristen was saying at the very beginning because you haven't been a startup founder that's raised venture capital money right, but like right. you're raising a lot more money than 250,000 you can't keep it in 40 different bank accounts and you have payroll to make on Wednesday that's all very reasonable main street problems that we should be trying to help fix <laughs> you both have said things that uh, this is a wild world. You both have said things that I feel like are just like so inherently obvious a week ago that we're now having to just clarify the state of the world in a, a really, really interesting way. Um, and also the idea of, I totally agree with you. I, I, and I, Chris, and I know that you agree that that needs to get revisited as well in terms of the FDIC insurance, but good luck trying to explain why businesses should have a higher insured deposits, uh, you know, kind of bar uh, to these folks that aren't understanding the nuance of this, right? Like good, good luck having that conversation with the politicians that are thinking this is already a bad thing. So anyway, that's a conversation for another day. This Uber is almost here uh, for me to go get on this plane. So I have one final thing, um, a quote from Frank Rotman and a question wait, for you wait, too. the portal's open. Go. Hey. The portal, holy shit. <laughs> that is the fucking note to end on. Good yes. job, Kristen Anderson. Clucking. <laughs> there we go. Click and refresh. Oh, right at the right goodness. moment, baby. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, that was all I needed. That was great. Well, so the, the what I was going to say is uh, Frank puts on on Twitter this morning. He kind of said, like, I've been shutting up this weekend because I've been actually helping and not fucking caps locking, like, you know, the, the rest of the squad. Um <laughs> But he said the next few weeks will be about fix. I'm it's open. I'm stuck on that. All right, the next few weeks, <laughs> the next few weeks will be about figuring out how this will change banking. Said Frank. I'm with him. I mean, I think like ah, like deep breath. But holy shit, what comes next is kind of where my head's at. 
Uh, yeah. So just final thoughts from you two in terms of kind of what you're thinking going forward. And then, I don't know, we might have to do another one of these as things continue to unfold. Okay. 30 second close for me is that in the last three years, founders have had to take on three new types of existential risk that they're being told are now critical to how they think. Pandemics, <laughs> insurrection, and now bank failure. And it's been a lot on founders and founders have a lot of risk that they're managing every day. And I don't love the rate at which we're adding these like previously small, small, small risks that shouldn't become priority. Um, we're, we're making them things that, oh, you as a founder should have been thinking about a pandemic. Um, well, you know, this list is getting long and it's going to be hard for entrepreneurs if we're expecting them to manage every risk to the 100th degree. So I, I hope that that take dies quickly. The end. That's a fucking great point. <laughs> I yeah, I love that. When you, when you take a step back and phrase it that way, I that's okay. Alex? <laughs> yeah, um, my 30-second one is just that um, I think that, you know, we get sort of caught up in all of the details of, oh, this is happening, this is happening. We're kind of getting, like, bounced back and forth. But if you sort of step back, like, way, way, way back, like, in the way of, like, zooming out into space and realizing that we're all just living on, like, a floating turtle that's, like, navigating the oceans, like, that level of, like, broad perspective, you know, this is all relating back to the pandemic and zero interest rates and just all of the shocks that are still working their way through this system. I mean, we we pulled in almost $3 trillion more in deposits into banking between 2019 and 2022 than we were expected to because of all the crazy stuff that we've been dealing with over the last three years. And the impact of that is starting to be felt and continues to be felt and probably will be felt for a while longer. So as we think about what banking looks like and what fintech looks like over the next 10 years, I think we need to give ourselves a little bit of a break that we're dealing with this huge shock to the system that's still working its way through. And once we start to get to the other side of that, I think then it'll be time to start making rational decisions about how all this works and what changes we should make. Amen. Amen. And I'm with Alex. I'm waiting to be rational until later. All right. Thank you, everybody. Alex, <laughs> Kristen, I appreciate the hell out of both of you. Thank you for your brains and jumping in last minute. Kristen, Thank you for jumping in, especially off camera in your state. Um, Godspeed. We'll we'll talk again soon, y'all. In your state, I don't. Chris, we even said I, anyway. We're just gonna carry I'm, on. I'm and very have pregnant. People... I'm gonna be giving birth very very soon. Yeah, I'm not like I'm not I'm not totally de well. I am totally debilitated. But anyway, good <laughs> luck getting to the airport. So good to see you guys as always. Sounds good. We kept hinting at it. I figured we should let the cat out of the bag all the way at the end. All right, y'all. Talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,